I have to thank John Gregory, even though he took a pot shot. Um, you know, if, if I don't make any sense this morning, it's because I can't see up here. Um, John and I are roughly the same age, so I'm, I'm thankful for another excuse just to uh, hide behind. It's one of those mornings where I'm not sure I'm going to make any sense. Um, but God is faithful, is he not? Well, good morning again. Uh, we are starting week two of our vision campaign, and let me just uh, set the context a little bit for us as we get going. Last week, we handed out vision packets to all of you. If you haven't gotten one, if you weren't around last Sunday, there are going to be ushers as you leave um, handing those out again. And uh, they provide background information and some shepherding to guide you through these six weeks. And one week in, I have to give you a little bit of a commercial uh, about something that I did not anticipate being such a rich component of the vision campaign materials at all. In fact, I was a little skeptical when I heard of the idea. But uh, some of us are on the mailing list um, because we went to vision.graceredeemer.com and um, many of you who got the packets are opening that 30-day devotional every day. It is such a gem. I cannot tell you. And, and I feel like um, a, sort of a proud papa um, I, I love it when I can say I, I had nothing to do with it. I really didn't. I didn't write any of those devotionals. Many of you did. And I am so proud of the spiritual fruit that came out of that effort. It is shepherding my heart on a daily basis uh, over the last six days. You don't get it on Sundays if anyone's wondering where it is this morning. It uh, auto-sends at, at like 2 a.m. in the morning, and it's there when you wake up. But it, it's such good stuff. If, if you haven't accessed it, Tap into it, vision.graceredeemer.com. If you're around during the town hall meeting, we're going to pass out uh, a sign-up just to make it easy so you don't have to uh, remember when you get home or get on your smartphones um, or pull out that devotional if you like old, good old-fashioned paper in front of you uh, and spend some time on a daily basis looking at God's Word and feasting. It, it, it's a gem. Well, what we're doing over these six weeks is building... Uh, a new vision of a renewed biblical community. And that vision does not start or end with programs, ministries, or even facility. It, in, it involves those elements, but it doesn't start and end with them. Last week, we laid some foundation with a focus on the word behind biblical community, koinonia, or fellowship as it's translated. It, it goes so much further than coffee and bagels in the hallway. We said that biblical koinonia is the shared life with God through faith in the Son, Jesus, the vertical fellowship. And that becomes the source of the natural progression to overflow horizontally in sharing that life with other believers in Jesus Christ. Admittedly, last week was sort of an inward focus. Church members talking about how do we need to invest in constantly building and renewing our own biblical community. This was my challenge to all of us in our interactions with one another, to increasingly season our conversations with gospel, with the word of Christ, as Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3. If there's nothing that can overflow from your life, it's a clear sign that you need to get back on your knees and feast on gospel. Be nourished so that you have something to give, to share. And, and by the way, the devotionals are, are two things at the same time. They're, they are a source of nourishment for your soul because they're based on the Word of God. And they're an example of biblical community. 
sharing gospel words and gospel conversation with one another to encourage, to build up. This morning we're talking about something else that's essential to real biblical community. It has to do with honest self-assessment. And we might even say it has to do with honest self-diagnosis. In the news every day, you might be tracking this, we're hearing about the Ebola epidemic. And part of the challenge is that um, you don't know when you get it. And if you do know, if you do happen to have access to medical care, there's no cure. There's only a palliative treatment. You know, you keep people hydrated. You prevent secondary infections. And spiritually speaking, we'd have to ask a similar question. How do you know you're sick? And if you do know it, how do you understand the extent of your sickness, which is what we'll call sin disease? Are you running to the only cure that does exist? without worrying about what other sick people might think of you. Matthew chapter 9. Uh, I think it's on page 687. Your bulletin tells you if you'd like to follow along in the Bible. Matthew 9, uh, just a few verses starting in verse 10. Listen carefully. These are God's words. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we need your spirit to open our eyes, the, the, the eyes of our hearts. We, we need you to open our minds. We need to get you to give us understanding, but more importantly, Lord, to let that truth penetrate past our brains into our hearts, to the depths of our being, that we might be changed. Speak, O Lord, if your servants are listening. Amen. Who needs an Ebola vaccine to be developed? Thankfully, I don't. I hope none of you does. I really hope none of you does, because you're here this morning. Um, but we look at West Africa, we look at isolated spots around the world where there are infected people, and we hope for their sakes that some kind of effective treatment, and eventually a vaccine of some kind, is developed so that thousands and perhaps tens of thousands of people won't continue to die. Who needs the gospel and the healing that it offers? Unreached people groups throughout the world, in places where Jesus is not welcome, where false religions dominate. We'd also look more locally and say, uh, who needs the gospel? People all around us who are chasing things that won't fulfill and instead are destroying and enslaving them. They need the gospel. Unreached people groups and my neighbor, (laughs) they need the gospel. But what about you? What about me? Are we okay? Like, we don't have Ebola, therefore not really relevant to me personally. Who needs the gospel? First thing we're going to point out is that sickness infects far more than you'd think. Sickness infects far more than you'd think. The Pharisees show up in the gospels, and they're often foils to Jesus, and they often give him a a great opportunity to to give some teaching. They were middle-class laypeople, 
not clergymen. They were the spiritual elite. They prided themselves on strict obedience to not only the Old Testament law, but to the religious traditions that had been piled up on top of and around the law. And they looked down on anyone else who didn't strictly obey the law like they did. So what do the Pharisees mean when they talk about Jesus eating with sinners? Tax collectors make sense. They, they were working for the Roman occupiers, cheating their fellow Jews out of hard-earned money. But what do they mean by sinners? Probably not everybody else, but instead, the really bad people. The people with public reputations, scandalous, sinful lives, openly needing gospel healing. Well, it's a fair question to ask at the same time, what does Jesus mean in verse 13 when he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners? Does he mean the same thing? Really bad people. I I have not come for the church people. You you guys are fine. I've come for those types, you know, who really are messed up. Is that what Jesus is saying? Far from it. Jesus is calling sinners those who know themselves to fall short of God's standards, who know themselves to be spiritually sick and desperately in need of gospel healing. That is why he has come, not to call the righteous, as if there were any, but to call the sinners. Luke chapter 4 describes the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. First thing he does, Luke records, in his ministry, walks into a synagogue takes up a scroll, reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he says in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Just like that. And if you were in that synagogue, you might have been tempted to look around Did that blind dude suddenly stand up and start reading Scripture? Didn't happen. Uh, It wasn't a jail. How could you know that the prisoners were suddenly released, that the oppressed would find uh, their own freedom? Jesus' arrival on the scene didn't mean instantly all these things are fixed. His arrival on the scene in the flesh did mean, though, that a spiritual revelation was underway and nothing could stop it. And that the wiping away of sin and its impact on everyday life would, by God's grace, for his believing people, one day be a reality. But he didn't leave the glories of heaven to take a tour of the earth. Jesus, the Word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us because the terminal disease of sin, far more virulent than Ebola, has afflicted every single person on earth and every part of his created order. And without divine intervention, without rescue and salvation, there's no hope. That's what Jesus meant by his declaration. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's your biggest problem, people, Jesus would have said. That's why I've come. And every bit of healing that he does is just a foretaste you know, raises the dead. Lazarus, he's going to die again and in a far shorter time frame than we would think. You know, back in the first century, a Palestinian um, area man, probably 40-year lifespan. Lazarus had to die twice. 
Jesus' healing, his raising, was just a foretaste. This is why he's come to address sin. It infects far more than you'd think. Earlier in this chapter, here's another example. Some guys bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They've already heard of what he can do. And Jesus' response immediately is, Take heart, son, verse 2. Your sins are forgiven. If you were his friend, you might think, uh, Pastor, he's got bigger problems. He's paralyzed. No quality of life. He's helpless. He needs people to feed him, to cleanse him, to carry him. Frozen limbs, pitiful condition. But Jesus, acting in pure love, knows that his biggest problem transcends his temporary physical state, as horrible as it is, with no medical care um, making that person's quality of life. No no rehab, no prosthesis, no... no, um, you know, um, medical durable equipment. People carry him around and he lies there all day. Jesus says his bigger problem is his heart. And I'm going to give him what he most needs. The most loving thing Jesus could do is to say your sins are forgiven. You know, we pray for physical health, don't we? Pray for bad backs. We pray that the cold or the bronchitis that hits us will go away quickly so we can get back to our normal daily activities. We pray for cancer to go away. We pray for the extension of life. And those are good prayers. Do we ever, do we sufficiently enough pray for spiritual health? Do do we pray against the evil one? Do we pray for spirit power to um, invigorate our Efforts to put sin to death on a daily basis because if we don't kill it, it will kill us. Do we, do we pray those prayers at all? Compare the bad back and headache prayers to sin infects far more than I'd think. It affects every aspect of my life, which is more serious. We need gospel healing more than we need a winter free from the flu. Arthur, uh, author Frederick Beekner is talking about the gospel when he writes this. Beneath our clothes, our reputations, our pretensions, beneath our religion or lack of it, we are all vulnerable both to the storm without, meaning outside of us, and to the storm within. And if ever we are to find true shelter, we need to start with a recognition of our tragic nakedness and need for true shelter. After the silence that is truth comes the news that is bad before it is good because it strips us bare in order ultimately to clothe us. I, I know Beekner's not an easy soundbite to digest, but let me put it in these terms. If you haven't been spiritually stripped bare by recognizing the diagnosis of sin that's your biggest problem now and for eternity within. Your biggest problem is inside. It's not your circumstances. Some of you don't need convincing that your life is broken, that the world is broken, that it's messed up, that there's pain and suffering because of your circumstances, what other people have done to you, what life has had happen to you. You don't need convincing. Beekner is pointing us, though, to our bigger problem than our neighbor, our mother-in-law, our boss, our bad friend, our ex-friend, he's saying, looking within, strip down the facade. There's bad news before there's good news. 
if you haven't been spiritually stripped with this diagnosis that your biggest problem is the sin in your own heart, then the clothes you're wearing are the robes of self-righteousness. You're proud of your, the fact that you're good enough, you're smart enough, you're savvy enough, you figure out life. You're on the right side more often than not. So why did Jesus have to come and die? Why did he say that he came because you're a prisoner, because you're oppressed, because you're blind? A renewed biblical community, which is what we're after, what we are, what we want to become more and more consistently, a renewed biblical community regularly tears down that facade of a nice church with nice people happily skipping towards heaven with not a care in the world. Sin infects far more than you'd think. That's the bad news that Beekner's talking about. Secondly, denying or hiding your sickness will only make you sicker. It's obvious, isn't it? It's what we do, though, spiritually speaking. By the way, you cannot diagnose your own spiritual health accurately at all. Sin is fundamentally self-deceiving. The most accurate answers are only discovered in rich biblical community. And beta groups and growth groups, John was pointing us to, are a great first step. They're, they're, they don't solve the problem. They, they get you heading in the right direction. Looking at one another in biblical community, speaking gospel words to one another, sometimes correcting and rebuking one another in gospel community. Um, that's another commercial along the way. Last Saturday, our uh, leadership training class just kicked off for the season with 18 men and women nominated to be elders, deacons, and deaconesses. And not all of them will become, uh, take those positions, but they're um, gathering together to, to be equipped. And um, part of our conversation involved a book on spiritual leadership, especially three pages that had these diagnostic questions, like, how well do you maintain self-control when things go wrong? How well can you handle criticism? And can you forgive when you've been wronged? And, and some in the class wondered if they were really qualified to be leaders. Even if those questions and a certain grade established a, an objective standard for leadership, you're, you're above it, you can be a leader. You're below it, you can't. And that wasn't the point of the book. But let's say that was the objective standard, you know, passing grade on these kinds of questions. If you failed that test... All it would mean would be that, like everyone else, you have sin that still needs to be dealt with. That's it. It's, it's a list that gives you a, a bit of a reflection on your self-diagnosis. Does it have relevance to leadership? Absolutely. But it has universal relevance to how we are walking in Christ-likeness, how we're becoming like Jesus. We all have sickness that requires gospel healing. The only question is, do we pay attention to our own spiritual health often and deeply enough to chase after the only cure that there is? Coming back to the gospel over and over. This past Wednesday night, about 40 people were here for our first ever Celebrate Recovery meeting. Wonderful launch of that ministry. Long awaited, long prayed for. God blessed it. And I am absolutely convinced that Wednesday, October 1st, 2014, will prove to be a milestone in the life of Grace Redeemer Church. 
I can say that because CR is at the core of gospel ministry. It's not just a program. It's not just a nice thing to add to our church resume, to put on our website, to, to keep people active on a Wednesday night. It's at the core of who we are and what we want to be more and more about. I said something like this in, in late August in uh, the two messages introducing Celebrate Recovery. But uh, relevant to Wednesday night, you'd be very wrong in assuming, based on that report, that 40 people are so messed up that they need a ministry like that. Wow, I'm, I'm so glad there's a place for people like that to come on Wednesday nights, you know, because they need it. They sure need it. You know, I'll, I'll be praying for them. But you'd also be very wrong in assuming that some people who are there just to help don't need recovery from anything. Because both conclusions make the same serious error seeing sin as spiritual sickness that only afflicts, afflicts the really bad people. And does that attitude sound a little bit familiar from Matthew chapter 9, where the Pharisees are drawing this clear line between the righteous and Jesus wouldn't hang out with sinners if he knew better? Here's the Pharisee attitude. The righteous don't have anything to do with sinners. Here's the gospel attitude. There was no one righteous, not even one. Psalm 14, informing Romans chapter 3. There's no one righteous, not even one, except the perfect human God and man, Jesus himself, of course. And if we're all sinners, why are we so afraid and self-conscious to talk about our spiritual sickness among fellow sick people? If you were in an Ebola ward and everyone had Ebola, why would you be embarrassed that you have it? We're all in the same boat. We're all dying. We all need a, a cure. We all need desperate intervention. And how can we not help fellow sinners experience a taste of the healing that we ourselves have received by grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ? How could we possibly hoard what we have received as if we had done it? Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? It's a gift. And it's a gift that does not have finite bounds. It, there, there's more where it came from. That's the biblical fellowship, koinonia, overflow, take from the vertical, give freely um, to, to one another. Jesus is really saying at the end of verse 13, I haven't come for those who think they're righteous, they're healthy. I have come for those who know they're sick something incredibly healthy about that self-diagnosis, that self-awareness. People who are merely religious have a hard time diagnosing self because they do good in their own eyes. They're not public disasters living scandalous lives. They have their own righteousness built up, and they find fault with others who just don't get it. They spend a lot of their time criticizing, complaining, tisking, wagging their finger, the Pharisees aren't just an historical curiosity that died out after the first century. Their spirit is alive and well, and yes, primarily in the church. But the irreligious, the sinners, they know they've screwed up. We know. <laughs> We've dug a hole and fallen into it. We know that honest diagnosis helps us to experience the fullness of gospel healing. That's where we go lastly. Sickness can only be cured 
through gospel healing. In this passage, Jesus gives us three things. He gives a general observation, he gives a teaching point, and then he gives us his purpose statement. We've talked about the first and third already. The second is a quote from the Old Testament, Hosea 6.6. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus wants relationship, not religion. He wants internal heart, not external show. The only reason you'd run to Jesus in a relationship of trust and dependence is your increasing awareness of your sin, sickness, and your need of his unique healing through forgiveness. That's what he wants, you to run to him. He doesn't hand out solutions. He doesn't hand out indulgences to experience forgiveness. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at a dinner party when a woman with a scandalous reputation one of those sinner types. She comes up to him, anoints his feet with expensive perfume, wipes his feet with uh, her hair as she's kissing his feet. And the host, again a Pharisee, thinks to himself, if this guy were a prophet, he would never let this happen. He would know what this woman is all about. Her reputation precedes her. He's not from here. Jesus sees the human heart, and he says, Simon, I got a story for you. Two men owed a moneylender money, one fifty, the other 500. Neither man had the money to pay their debt, so the moneylender decided to cancel both debts. Jesus says to Simon, which of them will love him more? Teacher, the one who was forgiven the bigger debt, right answer. And Jesus says this, Luke 7, 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. The irony with the Pharisee, and there's a little Pharisee in all of us. Can we admit that? The irony about the Pharisee is he or she distances themselves from God even in the midst of religiosity and obedience and goodness. And the irony with, can I extend this caricature for illustration purposes, the irony of 40 messed up people coming to CR on Wednesday mornings is that they have taken a giant step closer to God. And God is not standing there in the shadows waiting for the confession so that the guillotine can come down. God is in the light saying, come into the light. Yes, it's painful to expose your shame and guilt. Yes, it's painful to say, um, to, 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 to tell people about your brokenness, about your struggles, about yet again falling into the hole that you've dug for yourself. But come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Forty people, not every single one of them to the same extent, took a giant step forward in relationship in entrusting themselves to the heart of a Savior who does not condemn those who trust in Him, but says, I have gone to the cross as your substitute to pay the penalty for that sin and every other sin that you have and will commit. I love you. I forgive you.
Brennan Manning writes in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, if Jesus appeared at your dining room table tonight with knowledge of everything you are and are not, total comprehension of your life story and every skeleton hidden in your closet, if he laid out the real state of your present discipleship with the hidden agenda, the mixed motives, and the dark desires buried in your psyche, you would feel his acceptance and forgiveness. Isn't there a part of us that just doubts that? That says, if, if God knew everything about me, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. I, I can't tell you how, how many times over the years where I have spoken with someone, usually after the fact, who says, yeah, I haven't been in church for six weeks. Why? Brother, sister, why? God, God wouldn't want me there. What a lie from the pit of hell. It, it's, a, it's a lie. Do, do you think do you, need to, you need to act like a Pharisee and clean yourself up on the outside and show up and pretend that there's nothing wrong before God who sees the human heart? Jesus read this guy's mind. At this dinner party, Luke chapter 7, he knew what was going on. He told a parable that addressed the sinful thought, the, the wayward thought of a lost soul. Why would we believe a lie from the pit of hell that we are good enough on Sunday mornings to come into the presence of the king? You're right. Sin cannot stand in the presence of holiness. That's why Jesus suffered hell on the cross. That's why through faith in the Son, who is the only Savior, who, the only cure for the sin terminal disease that afflicts every one of our hearts, that's why Jesus' death was necessary. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You don't clean yourself up before you come to God. You come as you are and cast yourself at the mercy of God, and you would feel His acceptance and forgiveness their faith in the Son. Jesus is rebuked here in Matthew 9 because he's having dinner with sinners. It's significant because in Middle Eastern culture, even to this day, sharing a meal is very significant. It, it means acceptance, belonging, approval. You know, gospel freedom, once you trust in Jesus, doesn't mean you do whatever you want. Gospel freedom means that when you confess sin... When, when you accurately admit, recognize, embrace the diagnosis of your heart as sin-filled and desperately in need of gospel healing, gospel freedom means that when you confess the king himself against whom your sin was rebellion, the king himself, instead of condemning you, offers acceptance and forgiveness only because he offered his own son in your place on the cross of Calvary. Gospel healing. It's what we as a renewed biblical community need to be all about. Why? Not because it's some doctrine. And God, Bible just says it. Because the biggest problem that you and I are walking around every day is worse than Ebola. That will take your physical life. Sin will take your physical and spiritual life now and for eternity. If we're a church of Jesus Christ, we look in the mirror, we see that honestly. We don't condemn, but we just say, you're sick like I am. And if you're a Christian, speaking to a non-Christian, the position is, God has shown me a cure. May I point you to the same? 
There's nothing arrogant about that. There's nothing condescending. There's nothing of looking down on another. It's one beggar telling a fellow beggar how to find bread. It's one terminally ill patient telling another terminally ill patient, gospel healing will make you whole. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, we want to be this renewed kind of biblical community. Forgive us, Lord, when we play at church. Forgive us, Lord, when we don't look much different than another association of like-minded people enjoying perks of membership. Forgive us, Lord, when we call mingling fellowship when it lacks anything distinct from the atheist, humanist society. And give us spirit eyes to look in the mirror and realize how sick we are, but help us to look to Jesus quickly to realize how complete and thorough and free is gospel healing. We pray in Jesus' name.